Marshall and Sagar here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Hey guys, it's been a bit since we've done a back and forth discussion episode, but I know you guys are hungry for it. So we're back, excited to do these, especially going into 2023. Lots of big stories today. Just a quick note, these extra Friday episodes come via Supercast subscribers. So if you'd like to support the show, you can go to realignment.supercast.com. Sagar and I are talking about this, but we know people are obviously hurting with the quasi-vibe session to use Kyla Scanlon's helpful discourse for it. So no worries if you can't afford it, but if you can't support the show, would really appreciate it. Sagar, let's just dive into the news and then take some of the Q&A that folks sent in after the midterms. Let's start with the obvious Trump announcement. What is your instant reaction to what happened? I thought it was boring, uh, which was really surprising to me. But something I can, well, A, let's start with this. Never count Trump out ever, all the way up until the actual votes are counted. And then maybe even not afterwards. Uh, Number two, I actually am increasingly believing that the Trump announcement, while it was boring, accomplished what it needed to accomplish. So one of the problems for Trump coming out of the midterms, obviously, was what? That the people wholesale rejected, stop the steal, MAGA candidates without Trump, and then abortion. And so the Trump speech is the most I've ever seen him adhere to a prompter. It did not mention stop the steal one time. Not once. It made vague, you know, uh, vague appeals to like voter ID and only paper ballots, but whatever. Okay. People are like, that stuff. No, that's it's not. Generic. Okay? That's generic. Every Republican candidate is going to say that from now on. Exactly. That's generic Republican positioning going back to like the Reagan administration. And then he didn't say a single word about Dobbs, about abortion, or the Supreme Court. And it was boring. And actually, the real tell to me was that Lindsey Graham immediately after the speech tweeted out and he was like, great speech by President Trump. You know, if this is the tone that he keeps, he will easily win re-election and the nomination. And I was like, you know what? I'm increasingly believing that speech was not for the general public. That speech was to GOP elites and others to give them the capacity to be like, see, he's acting presidential. You know, he uh, has learned his lesson from the midterms. Now, look, we all know that's, not going to happen. But um, even though I thought it was very lackluster, look, he's still got two years. And if you consider it in that framework, it's possibly a victory for him. What did you think? Boring is exactly it. I thought I was going to watch the entire thing because I was going back to 2015 Yeah, when he came down the escalator and I was interning back at, I believe, uh, AEI back then. Yeah, I you remember were seeing... I remember seeing him just come down the escalator on CNN and I thought, oh, like this doesn't really matter. Ha ha. We'll get to the serious stuff. So that was obviously a terrible take. So I watched it thinking this is history. Whether or not he wins, we're going to look back and none of that. To your point though, I really agree with your point around how that was clearly just a message of normalcy. And no matter what, Noah's going to be voting based on that statement. Mm-hmm. And to your point, too, the thing that really mattered was that he didn't throw the temper tantrum. Because that's probably what you wanted if he was a DeSantis ally. And I think his team knows that the pre-election turn against DeSantis was a disaster. 
I think if he hadn't made the pre-election DeSantis attacks, even the weak midterm performance wouldn't have hurt as much as he did. But when he set up DeSantis as his enemy, as his opponent who was out of line, then DeSantis is probably one of the only big wins. Yeah, that's right. That night, that was a that was that was a real problem. I think the other thing that I would just say is, look, I'm obviously not going to vote for Trump in 2024. But just speaking to, I'd say, like the right wing part of the audience, watching that speech, I don't know the point of bringing Trump. I don't know what the point of Trump bringing Trump back would be versus DeSantis. I know this isn't quite the way the Republican voters are thinking about this primary, but my reaction is, okay, there's a bipartisan consensus on China. Republicans are now generically anti-media. DeSantis does his own the libs bit every few months. I don't know quite what the point of Trump is, especially if he's jettisoning, stop the steal, and there isn't any more hinge point of history, Supreme Court up for grabs. So that was, I mean, it was just a weak, it was a weak argument. If, if this is the, and I guess this to, to end the rant to your point, the reason why Trump can't just stay in this status quo and it's going to have to go back to being old Trump is I don't think this Trump convincingly can beat DeSantis. Uh, I don't know about that. I don't think so. I think Trump is still the favorite. I don't believe a single one of these polls. You know, this is a fun uh, part. Everyone's like, look at these GOP polls where DeSantis beats Trump. I'm like, you mean the ones that were just off by 15 points in New yeah, Hampshire? Let's clarify that for a yeah. second. The Immediately after the midterms, yeah. DeSantis has jumped over right. Trump on those polls. So that's what you're referring to. I don't know if folks Specifically, saw that. polls released by the Club for Growth <clears throat> and other Republican pollsters. So I'm like, look, I don't believe any of these things. I have no idea. I don't actually think we know or are capable of polling Republicans at all. So, okay, now what? What do we do? It'll be the test case. Now, if I'm DeSantis, I don't know. At the same time, I've always thought this. I think Trump should have announced the day that he got raided. Um, by the FBI. That was when DeSantis bowed. That's when Glenn Youngkin bowed. Every single Republican was united. It would not have been the best for the midterms, but it would have been the best thing for him. The second best time to announce was the day after the midterms. I don't even think he should have waited until November 15th. And now that he has announced, it's first mover advantage. Here's my thing with DeSantis. The longer you wait and the more you pussyfoot around, the more that Trump has both to make his argument and also these people are not operating in the framework through which they conceivably could win. The conceivable framework for a Mike Pence or Ron DeSantis, let's not even put Mike Pence in there. All right, it's let's Ron put Ron DeSantis, DeSantis in there. Uh, let's put Ron DeSantis in there, is he cannot run against Trump. He has to run against the media, against the Democrats, and make the case that he is the best person to go and be their, uh, their opposition, their king. That's not a very convincing argument because you have now, you have to beat Trump. You have to go against Trump. Here's the other problem. The head-to-head -head scenario, which everybody is, is envisioning, that does not appear to be the case. Asa Hutchinson is a governor of Arkansas. He was on CNN this morning saying that he would decide whether he's going to run by January. I think he's probably going to run. Um, the media loves him, and he's deluded into thinking he could do well. I think Larry Hogan is likely to run, uh, essentially has said as much. Second and most important is that a key part of the coalition that would have to go with DeSantis would have to be evangelical voters. Well, uh, Mike Pence has said that he's going to run, and Mike Pence is going to make a very convincing case on Dobbs and on gay marriage, which he's very willing to stand up. He's going to take the Ted Cruz coalition. 
I saw a major pro-life activist actually endorse Mike Pence just this morning. So we're looking at the same stratified field of 2016, 2015, maybe not as many candidates, but enough major candidates. And in that environment, DeSantis, there, and also, Trump has been on the stage for seven years. Everyone keeps saying his 30%. No, I think it's much higher than that now. I think it's 45, 50. There are people who are still very, very loyal to Trump. So anyway, uh, I don't think, also, if DeSantis is gonna run, where's your organization? Your former campaign manager, that lady, Susie, she works for Trump. She's his uh, national go-to-vote director. Already, already locked in. That's not a coincidence, by the way. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of political consultants. He doesn't have an outside super PAC. I don't think it helps that the only people who are vociferously defending him are the GameStop guy, Ken Griffin, and who, this is the funny thing too, DeSantis is so far only major backer, Ken Griffin, was speaking in Singapore whenever he said that DeSantis needs to run against Trump because Trump is a three-time loser, and in the very same sentence said that we need to stop our trade war with China. So I'm like, okay, well, you know, these are the people who are for him. I I don't see it. Uh, I, I just don't see that scenario right now. And Marshall actually stole this from you. I don't think GOP voters give a shit about electability. I think- they yeah, let me love. explain this. Yeah, I think they, I think they love the the game. You know. Yeah. So the the con the context of the electability. This is something we were talking about during the Breaking Points live midterm show. Look, a lot of people want like to say Democrats, Republicans, it's all the same. But actually, in primaries, Democratic base voters or Republican base voters just have completely different rubrics or so they're looking at their candidates. So if you are a independent voter. If you are a Republican, you're going to look at the 2020 Democratic primary and say, how did Joe Biden become the nominee? You had put, you know, your thoughts about people to judge aside. You had young Pete, you had young Pete, you had Kamala, you had Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, like Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, countless numbers of politicians that I think had stronger narratives. And Joe Biden did going into that primary, mm -hmm. who I think at a pure charisma level were more compelling. And then there's just the obvious age issue. So why would that party select Joe Biden? And then you have Bernie Sanders coming from his really impressive second place in 2016. It's because there was one issue that the majority of Democratic voters were voting on in 2020, and that was electability. It wasn't who sets my heart aflutter. It wasn't oh. who has the best vision for America. It wasn't well, I'm thinking America needs to be a little more left than center left or the Green New Deal. It was literally just electability. And frankly, I'm not even using this as an attack on Biden to argue that he wasn't substantive when he's just vote running on electability, because I think this is what the key skill in politics are. It's actually understanding where the electorate was at. So Biden understood that the way he would become president and with, by winning the nomination wasn't by issuing the edgiest white papers or getting the hippest, coolest Green New Dealist, modern monetary theorist thinkers on your panel. Mm -hmm. And it was literally just, hey, we know you guys as Democratic voters wake up every single day thinking, oh my God, if Trump is president in 2021, I'm going to have the worst four years of my life. So I'm going to argue with the person who can beat it. If Ron DeSantis were running under a Democratic Party, or if, if the Republican Party were like the Democratic Party, I would 100% bet on Ron DeSantis then, because think of your Ken Griffin argument, three-time loser, 
if the 2020 Democrats were faced with Biden losing a presidential election, causing midterm losses, losing the popular vote, he'd be pushed to the side. But the electorates are just so different. So here's the question, like, what do you think Republican vote? Uh, we see a decent, decent enough percentage. Of, what is a decent enough percentage of the Republican Party actually voting based on? Okay, well, uh, I would actually point to, and that's what I'm looking for right now, Richard Hanania's 2020 uh, presidential election takeaways. I'm trying to find the post, but obviously it's been like two years. <laughs> but I would encourage people to go and to look at that. And one of the things that Richard found out in that like retrospective was that Republican voters were motivated almost entirely by hatred of the media. And, you know, for a long time, people were unable to square this. They're like, oh, well, Trump was first, but who came in second, Marshall? Who was the Ted only Cruz. person? Thank you. Now, they don't have anything in common on policy. But why? Because the establishment hated Ted Cruz, second only to how much they hated Trump. So why does that matter? Well, that means that the only currency that matters to voters is how much the left hates you. That's part of the reason why I don't think DeSantis could uh, could beat Trump, because one of the things that people love about Trump is how much he's hated by everybody, not by how much he's loved, by how much he's hated. Remember this, Trump consistently gets a, one of the lowest approval ratings of any political actor in all of American politics, but it's precisely the people who hate him by having the right enemies that a lot of people are willing to hold their nose and to vote for him. Well- I think that is the single most important factor in a GOP primary. And I would encourage, maybe we can go, people can go back. Actually, we did an interview with Richard right after the election. People should go listen to it. It was like two years ago. And one of the things that came through was that, look, I would love for it to be economics. I really would, but it's not. Um, it is almost entirely centered around, uh, I'll put this kindly, changing culture for older boomer whites and the media, hatred of the left. So in that, here's another, I think, important point for GOP primary voters. They, you know that whole saying, like, Democrats vote their heart and, and like, Republicans, whatever, I forget exactly what it is. Well, you know, Republicans did uh, actually not go with their heart in 2012. The pitch by the GOP elite was that Mitt Romney, I know he's Mormon, it's weird. I know that you don't love him. I know he wasn't with us on Obamacare. But guys, he speaks well, and he's electable. And a lot of people said, okay, screw it. I'll vote for Mitt. I'll back Mitt. Well, then Mitt lost. That's part of the reason. That's a big key part of the story about why people back Trump. And then, this is what GOP elites will never be able to square with. The one time that they did in modern, you know, basically modern history since Reagan, Trump wins. He wins against Hillary. So a lot of these people don't have the same amount of credibility that the Dem elites did on electability vis-a-vis -vis, um, vis -vis Biden. And I think that you put all that together. Also, it matters who votes. Remember this, uh, even J.D. Vance in his autopsy retrospective about what went wrong is he was like, look, like Dems now have the highest propensity voters, as in people who vote all the time. Well, if that's the case, that's actually terrible for people who are Republicans, specifically advancing an electability argument, because by definition, low propensity voters, they don't give a shit about electability. They give a shit about or really even institutions or the democratic process. They're not like bought into the system. They're coming in because they like 
somebody or because they hate somebody else, in my opinion, hate on the Republican side. Again, all of these occurrences in the Trump basket. Now, look, a lot of things, a lot of the crazy shit could happen. Trump could get indicted, although I think that'd be good for him. I think it'd be the best outcome for him, actually. Um, Trump could, uh, look, he's an old man. Some people were speculating that from his speech was, it's been seven years since that escalator. That's a long ass time when you're a 78 year old. There's a lot of things that could happen. But look, where I'm standing right now, I don't see it. Yeah, let's talk to the midterms autopsy aspect. There was a lot of cope on the internet in the wake of the midterms. Yeah, I think that's a great The cope that I was most frustrated by was just the, the number one thing. Josh Hammer of Newsweek had this tweet. The number one thing Republicans have to focus on is the mail-in ballots. It should be election day, not election month. What I find to be so dumb about this take, let's bracket this into two different areas. So number one, A, Republicans didn't lose because Democrats have some month-long voting conspiracy mail-in ballot disaster. So the idea that that is your number one area of focus for the next two years is just a miscalculation of what's actually going on here. But then two, to your point, Sagar, when you're describing how Stop the Steal was disastrous for Republican candidates, guys, new right people who think that the election integrity direction's an effective way for the party to go for the next two years. Look, the number one thing we've learned from the Trump era is that DC-based or Miami-based elites have zero control over mm. any part of this process. So let's Correct. talk this out here. The big new right national conservative DC pro-Trump apparatus declares that the number one issue of focus is elections and making sure they're just completely secure. There's a clean version of that. There's a version of that that you, can, you and I could articulate that wouldn't be inherently offensive. Is it even conspiracy minded? And frankly, people just really identify with it. Okay, what's actually going to happen? What's actually going to happen is that it will, you'll, you'll try to have that cleaned up version. It will get bastardized into stop the steal within two seconds. Yeah, correct. Carrie Lake is not going to stop. The Carrie Lakes of the world, the Doug Mastrianos of the world are not going to stop at your DC approved edgy, right, but like ultimately safe, they're going to go and you're going to have a repeat of 2022 all over again. What, what do you think about this uh, dynamic? Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I think it's the biggest cope of all time. They just don't want to admit the following, that A, a lot of MAGA candidates were shit candidates. B, actually here, let me just find uh, Ross Douthat's summary of this. Although I also think Ross is downplaying abortion for uh, his own personal reasons. He says there is no need to choose a single scapegoat. Republicans can have simultaneous problems, which is a polycrisis. Number one, Trump's toxicity. Number two, the basis preference for unelectable candidates. Hmm. Number three, the unpopularity of full pro-life position post Dobbs. And number four, a lack of a middle-friendly economic agenda. And I think that is possibly the best way to put it. I read Sean Trendy's analysis about what happened. I think that's also very spot on. But, you know, people keep talking about the popular vote and it's really annoying the crap out of me whenever it comes to uh, whenever it comes to midterms, because when did the popular vote matter for, by definition, geographically distributed regional uh, districts? That literally doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is, like the Electoral College, where you get the votes. So if you get 
a massive run up in Florida, who gives a shit? Like if Ohio and Michigan, or sorry, if Michigan and Wisconsin go overwhelmingly blue, well, okay, now you have a real problem. And same with Arizona, same with Georgia. So really, well, I think we should point, put- Really with Arizona and Georgia, because those yeah, are states Republicans can't lose. Right. That's why I'm like, put like, enough with the popular vote. Like this is the same thing that the Dems do. Look, people, electoral college ain't going anywhere. So regional variation is the only thing that we can all care about. All right, well, then in that environment, I think it matters a hell of a lot. Now, I personally think that abortion is just way more important than most of the commentariat is uh, taking credit for. There's this weird leftist, uh, or not leftist, like liberal want to make this like a referendum on January 6th. And I, I'm not going to say that that isn't the case, but I think that Stop the Steal has a lot more to do with it. And then on the right, of course, they don't want to admit that Dobbs was tremendously unpopular. How else do you lose abortion referendums in Kansas and Kentucky? Like, get out of here. Or, and Michigan as well, which is a straight up swing state. And don't forget, there's also the Montana. There's also the Montana right, referendum Montana. too. Right. Yeah, exactly. Montana, one of the most conservative states in the entire country. Like, okay, good luck, you know, for the people who are claiming all this. So they have to come to this fake ballot harvesting excuse. It's genuinely pathetic. So- well, quick thing. This was my yeah. JD JD Vance did a post election analysis, and he was focusing on the money gap Ugh, as a serious yeah. issue. We didn't raise enough money. Democrats raised a lot of money. My perspective, from a strategic perspective, is it's not helpful to focus on issues that enable you to cope with what your actual problem is. And the actual problem, if you are a Republican strategist going into twenty twenty four assuming Trump is your president, is that there are two specific issues, to your point, Sagar, mm -hmm. abortion. And the one modification I'd give to your January 6th stop the steal statement is when there was an election denier on the ballot. Yeah, that's correct. The democracy argument really, really, really worked. And I think, and I, and I entirely, actually, I frankly entirely agree with that argument. Like the things that Carrie Lake and Doug Mastriano were saying were inexcusable. Blake Masters. Oh, I said that. Like, I was uh, like, uh, yeah, listen. Yeah, I'll say too. Like, Doug Blake, Mastriano way, like Blake Masters. Constitutional like, crisis. Gonna, you know, this is going to piss some people uh, off, like new right members of the audience. But when Blake Masters did that ad saying Donald Trump won, it's like, okay, dude, you deserve to lose. Um, there was no reason to do that. It didn't make any sense. It wasn't helpful. He did right. that ad and didn't even start raising in the polls until like months later after like money came in. So it, it, was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was literally just kind of this, look at I can do trying to show things off. I, I think the thing I really think about, it's, you know, you and I really dunk on the old world establishment types. But something I think people from that very practical world understood is that politics is not the area where you're supposed to come out and show off your edgy takes or deal with your personal problems or work through your emotions or anger. It's just something deeply practical. And that was clearly forgotten. Let me also say this. I love JD. He's been good to me. But I'm telling you, I think that that op-ed is just fundamentally wrong because the headline is don't blame Trump. And the entire thesis is we got outraised. Well, actually, if your problem is money, Trump is the single biggest obstacle because he steals all of the money. If you look at his yeah, fundraising, yeah, if you look at the way, okay, so Save America PAC, if you are unfortunate like me and you monitor these emails and get these things uh what do they say they're like click here to you know stick it to the radical left against 
Tim Ryan. And when you do, like 90% of the money goes to Trump. So if you're mad at if you're mad about money, it's because Trump literally stole all the money. Even right now, there's emails going on right now uh, for Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker literally gets like a dime for every $10 that you donate. Oh, I saw this screenshot on Twitter. It's people insanity. Search this on Twitter. Is it good? Well, yeah, I'm sorry, people can to your go point, and find it. When you're, like, when you're articulating the, the Trump thing, yeah. another way to articulate what JD's saying is, wow, there's something in the air. Yeah. Unlike previous eras of American history, Gets Democratic voters incredibly yeah. excited right. and donating money because, like, look, look, look what happened in 2010. Democrats, they voted for Obama. They got their Holpy change to make a Sarah Palin reference now that yeah. she's finally gone from her politics, um, losing the uh, congressional election in Alaska. They left. You know, it's like the, the line was okay, we, we voted for Obama. We've got change now. Mainly they didn't show up in the midterms. In the 2022 midterms, Democrats showed up. There was energy. The money was there. And that's because of Trump. So even like when you articulated the way you just articulated, Sagar, just stepping out of your way to just excuse Trump from things isn't actual strategic thought or analysis and doesn't actually signify an accounting with the with the problem. What annoyed me about the JD autopsy was that he's just trying to suck up to Trump. And like, look, that's fine. I get it. I understand how politics works. All he wanted is for somebody, some dumbass to print that out and give it to Trump and he'll sign it and be like, JD, so true. Sign Trump and then mail him back. Uh, Wait, sorry. Wait, pause. That. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Can you make clear that you're you're being literal when you're telling this story? No, yeah. Like, the, like, this, this, this is actually oh, as yeah, far as people don't realize this. This is literally how it works. Like what happens is that Trump, people, his advisors <laughs> print out articles with headlines that he likes and then he'll sign them and be like he did this with rich rich lowry once and he was like rich so true and then mailed it <laughs> mailed a copy of it because trump doesn't use email or an ipad <laughs> okay and look like i get it all right like jd has to play the game he's a newly elected senator trump literally saved his ass endorsed him all good but as a piece of descriptive analysis I thought it was dog shit and I thought it was bullshit. And again, it's like, you can't say don't blame Trump and then say that it's a money problem when Trump literally sucked up over $100 million and then didn't spend most of it on the candidates that he backed in those races. I would, if I was, you know, this is the other thing, Blake Masters, Blake Masters blaming Mitch McConnell. Really? You should be blaming Trump. Trump is a guy who had your back, uh, endorsed you, and then didn't spend a ton of money behind you? What? What is that? Mitch McConnell gave him what? Millions of dollars in that race. And actually, if you look at it, uh, Mitch wasn't wrong about your so-called contestability. Let's, what's the final margin in Arizona, um, in the Arizona Senate race? How this much came did, out, well, while, while you're getting that, you know, the, there was yeah, the New York lost Times by article. Five. Where, That's a lot. That's a lot of points. He lost by and, five points. Yeah. And they, and they, you know, and look, they, they quoted this in the New York Times, like post-op in the race. One of McConnell's people said that Blake literally focus grouped as one of the worst candidates right. that you'd right. ever surveyed. And say we went with Mitch McConnell's team. If there's one thing they do, it's a hell of a lot of focus groups over the past two decades. So the mm -hmm. key thing here is really separating. It, it, it feels like the, the whole point, if you're on the right over the past two years has really been, oh, wow, you know, we survived January 6th. Joe Biden is struggling. He's underwater popularity wise. We can do whatever we want. You watch the ads Blake was putting out. 
You look at some of JD's more extreme statements. You look at the nominations of Carrie Lake and Doug Mastriano. And the key take is, wow, it's just like 2009. We could do anything. The next two years, because I want to get to the last 15 minutes of audience questions. The next two years from here are clearly going to be, okay, how do we actually operate in non-favorable conditions? Because frankly, I have no reason to not assume that things will considerably change. Um, considering these tensions. Mm-hmm. So let's, just, let's get to the uh, first question. So this is uh, actually related to the JD question. Um, why did JD Vance underperform? As someone who was a big JD Vance before he went to politics, I was surprised to see him struggle in the election. He won but underperformed based on everything I've heard. What do you think this is and what does it bode for the national conservative wing of the Republican Party? Well, uh, that's interesting. Okay, so first, let's actually test that thesis. So JD got 53.3% of the vote. Tim Ryan got 46.7%. JD beat him by 6.6. And that Trump won that state by eight points. So did he underperform? I don't know. I I think he'd probably say... Right. he, I'm not sure if would, that's so fair, though, because we're to, talking to about the, national they, they, Some would say he underperformed relative to the governor. Um, but I think what you're bringing out, Sagar, is that the underperformed... Yeah. You know, you know you, here's what I think happened. JD mm-hmm. was obviously not doing as well in the polls as his final result happened. Yeah. So you saw folks merge together, Tim Ryan overperforming in polls with what actually happened, where it seems like yeah. he's operated where they were going to actually had it always end up. I don't think it's a fair enough interpretation because the gubernatorial race was quite separate from the national political environment on this one, of which Tim Ryan and J.D. Vance were obviously running within. So the gubernatorial, I think, should be set aside on this particular one. And look, Ohio was not a swing was a swing state not that long ago. So I got the 2016 margin in front of me. Trump only won 51.3 to Hillary's 43.24. He increased that margin. That was in 2016. He increased that margin in 2020, but Barack Obama won it twice from 2008 to 2012, and also George W. Bush, I believe, uh, won it in 2004, um, yes. I want to say. So why does that matter? Which is, well, it's also a state, last time I checked, with a Democratic senator named Sherrod Brown. Now, Tim Ryan did his best to try and capture some of that Sherrod Brown energy, so you had a good candidate. Uh, or a better candidate on the one side. And then, you know, in a basically blue wave election, I'm, uh, I guess we can say that now, uh, a blue wave election, JD underperformed Trump by 1.2 points. That's not terrible. So, you know, I'm not so ready to dance on JD's grave for the whole, like, he underperformed just because people are p- comparing him to Mike DeWine. I mean, Mike DeWine, again, like he, he has to run really only on his record on COVID, of which he did a pretty good job. And, you know, by and large, didn't have a real contestable candidate on the other side. So it's not necessarily a surprise. I don't know. What do you think, Marshall? Do you think he underperformed? I don't, I don't really think it's fair to say that. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with everything yeah. you just said. Let's not get the polls confused. And also, too, on the governor's point, Apparently not a single governor lost re-election mm-hmm. this year. So this if there was a year to be a governor. Thing. No, wait, Nevada might have actually. Nevada might have. Okay. So I think it switched. Yeah. Governor governors performed pretty well this year. So it's just not shocking. Yes, we we talk about, you and I may need to kind of revise our generic convention wisdom about politics not being local. Governors Chris Governors, and I have been talking about this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Governors 
talented governors have clearly been able to um, edge out their own little fiefdoms. Yeah. Um, Larry Hogan would have won again. Charlie Baker, yeah. Massachusetts would have won again. It's kind of funny. The Northeast is kind of becoming like a moderate Republican haven. That's clearly a separation there. So we should think of revisiting that narrative. But I want to focus on the second part of the question. What does this mean for national conservatism? Look, I think the very obvious generic take here is that national conservatism, that, that being the new right, trying to turn Trump's insights from 2016 into a economic, into a, into a serious project. I think, in, I think in good faith, sometimes people just kind of like dunk on it from like the center left, but I, I, I take it seriously. It doesn't work as a, it, let me put it, actually let me put it this way. I think national conservatism could be a useful framework for actually governing a country. Trump, I think would have been better served by applying national conservative insights during 2016 to 2020 than he was, you know, imbibing Gary Cohn thought. But there's a difference between governing and actual campaigns. Yeah. Um, seriously, like not to just harp on JD off, but we just know JD's thought. Don't forget, JD started the 2020 primary by talking about how he was going to raise taxes on upper middle class liberals. Like this was a this was a this was a national conservative talking point. This idea of like punishing your enemies, this idea of like focusing on the working class part of the GOP coalition, and he dropped it for a reason. It wasn't convincing as political rhetoric or an underlying convincing philosophy. So the, the real problem here is that the national conservatives, I just don't think they have a useful addition beyond just the average of any GOP candidate. Look, I agree with you. I've effectively thought the dream was dead since Trump in 2020. He won 10 million more votes, people. He did two things. He let drug dealers out of prison and he cut uh, taxes for rich people. So you tell me uh, whether, like by that thesis, then he should have lost votes in Ohio. He actually increased votes. He actually increased votes in union places. He did not uh, pick up, he didn't lose. He paid no price for his very typical uh, 2017 tax cuts agenda. I think that's a very strong lesson that people honestly, at least a lot of GOP voters, really don't give a shit at all. And even some independent voters as well. And in a culture first environment, natconism effectively became, we're going to use the state to crush our liberal enemies. And I mean, okay, again, like I, again, you know, like you said, I think it's that maybe that's how you can run a country, but I'm not so sure that voters all care that much. And if anything, they kind of found themselves on very contradictory sides of social issues. And then further, they were not really keeping with the quasi-libertarian kind of spirit of a lot of new GOP energy. We've talked a lot here about the Barstool conservative thesis and all of that, but take a look at all the people voting for Ron DeSantis. I mean, and even his own like coalition. I've always found it odd that Natcons seem to really like Ron DeSantis when Ron DeSantis hasn't done anything from my estimation on any like major Natcon ground other than what, like the CRT bill or um, the CRT bill that, yeah, that's right. On an economic He's front, a fighter, like, I can't yeah, think it, of a it's, single it's, one. It's, right. You know, but then funny. I was like, so, to so, what so end? It's, so it's, so yeah. this is your point then. It's affect. Yeah. 
and you oh don't God, okay. need to fucking you know we had Sora Mario on the podcast and you know he's talking how the GOP needs to be like much more labor friendly and always like push the GOP towards the left direction economically yeah just no actual like, once again that could be a good policy for no, I was gonna say I agree with him <laughs> like yeah you know, but I actually yeah. don't see any actual evidence that that's a compelling political program so yeah this is this is a this is a problem for the national conservative side I want to get to uh one other question because this is a one other question then we'll just uh wrap real quick um crime as an issue in the midterm um shortening the person's question but basically the person said what happened with crime in the midterms actually no, let me merge these two questions together got two questions one about crime in the midterms the other about inflation why did they not work these two narratives were supposed to help um, Republicans in the midterms. Like, what do you think, Sager? Abortion was big. Exit polls out of the state of Pennsylvania so that abortion mattered more than inflation by 12 points. Pretty simple. Uh, abortion was just a hell of a lot low, more important. And look, the thing with crime is you got to believe that who you're electing is not fucking crazy. And it has like a real ability to effectively govern. And I think that many of the GOP candidates were not able to project that message which is, you know, people did not feel like people should really go back and study Giuliani. You know, he wasn't the crazy guy that he is today. Like he projected a calm measure of confidence in declaring war on crime and like cleaning up the streets. Like, is that what you got out of Doug Mastriano and Dr. Oz? Like, you know, who who is on the opposition and the message of the message of like what I'm going to do about crime and can I effectively manage crime is just as important as being weak on crime quote-unquote so we'll see yeah and the uh we're doing lots of like harping on the gop today obviously but i think that's that's the issue at hand right now how the gop reacts lost, to these so. results <laughs> you know whoever runs the house judiciary account on twitter on the republican side i thought it was a good idea to tweet about the investigations into hunter biden's laptop is not getting the memo um regarding these issues Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's just wild to me that it really feels like we're just going to do a repeat of 2010 to 2012, but as if Democrats overperformed in the 2010 midterms. Right. Yeah, um, I think you're right. And the other, and look, the other issue, the, the person's asking, like, why didn't the inflation, um, uh, this is Matthew from the Substack, why didn't the inflation message work? I don't think voter. I genuinely don't think voters genuinely thought Republicans had a broad answer to inflation. That was well, popular or compelling enough to overwhelm the abortion and in context democracy issues. My takeaway on inflation is that voters were willing to buy the Biden administration's uh, explanation that it was structural and it was not because of them. So I wouldn't even say that necessarily it's about what people are going to do about it, but they weren't willing to play the blame game. And this kind of gets back to what we're talking about crime, like just being like crime is bad and they're aligned with crime. Like that's not enough. Uh, in order to say, like, I'm going to trust you that you were not responsible for said <laughs> action, even if I agree with you that it's bad. Does that make sense? Yeah, I know. And I think yeah. that this is probably a good development for no, our I politics. think it's great. Yeah, I think it's because, good. <laughs> look, the, the broad story of the country the past 50 years, you and I constantly harp on this, is just that the pendulum has just swung between both parties, you know, Reagan We'll have a landslide election in 1984 mm. and Democrats will take the Senate back in 1986. This consistent inability of either so- neither side to actually just hold what they have because things won't be great. And people say, okay, let's give the other side a shot because they just punish whoever holds power. 
if we switch to a dynamic where voters aren't just going to those independent swing voters aren't basically just going to say, well, we gave people a year and a half. So now we're just going to switch to the other side. That feels like a productive space to get out of. Um, but yeah, this is a this is a good place to to wrap. I had to cut this one a little shorter. We're into the holiday season, obviously. Hope everyone has a uh, great Thanksgiving week. But soccer, this was uh, very fun. And folks, definitely uh, check out the Supercast and the Substack that's coming out later today. If you have any additional thoughts, happy to follow up on those. All right, see you guys later. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something, like the show's mission, or want to access our subscriber-exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year, or $500 for lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.